I would like to remind our children, uh, grades two and below, that they can head to Children's Church at this time. Everybody head together. And I know that you've already sat down, but I would ask that you remain standing as we get into the word together. We were discussing in our staff meeting this last week that we needed to remember to say, greet one another, and then please remain standing for the reading of the word, but that's all right. We, uh, but you remembered to stand. That's pretty good. We'll take it. Uh, we are again turning to the book of Ezekiel, and we are going to Ezekiel chapter 6, and we're going to be reading verses 1 through 10. In our time together, we're going to cover much more than that, but for our time in the, in the Word this morning, we are going to read Ezekiel chapter 6, verses 1 through 10. And the Word of God says this. It says, And the Word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face towards the mountains of Israel and prophesy against them, and say, Mountains of Israel, listen to the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys. Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword on you, and I will destroy your high places. So your altars will become desolate, and your incense altars will be smashed. And I will make your slain fall in front of your idols. I will also lay the dead bodies of the sons of Israel in front of their idols, and I will scatter their bones around the altars. In all your dwellings, cities will become waste, and the high places will be desolate, that your altars may become waste and desolate, your idols may be broken and brought to an end, your incense altars may be cut down, and your works may be blotted out. The slain will fall among you, and you will know that I am the Lord. However... I will leave a remnant, for you will have those who escape the sword among the nations when you are scattered among the countries. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations to which you have been carried captive, how I have been hurt by your adulterous hearts, which turned away from me, and by their eyes which played the harlot after their idols. And they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed for all their abominations." Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster on them. Please be seated. As we hear the rain start to rush down. Have you ever been in a situation where you hated to be right? Do you know what I mean by that? There's been one of those situations where, where you were proved to be right. What you said, what you counseled against, maybe some advice you gave, and you warned somebody about something that might be happening. And, and then when it was all said and done, you were right, but you weren't happy about it. You didn't want to be right because you knew what was going to happen if you were right. And you kind of felt bad about it and you, and you wish that the outcome had been very, very different. You could, but for whatever reason, you could see the writing on the wall. You recognized the red flags and you knew that bad things were on the horizon. And you even tried to warn those people. Think maybe it's a family member or a child or a close friend. And you kind of went to them and you said, hey, 
I'm not, I don't have a good feeling about this. There's, there's a lot of warning flags here. Hey, I don't think this is a good decision, a good path to take, a good um, relationship to get into. And, and you know that, that, that something bad may happen. And yet, they don't take that advice. No, it'll be fine. No, it's totally okay. Well, we have to give them a shot, whatever it might be. And because of that, you watch this friend, child, family member, co-worker, whatever it is, this person go down a path that is going to lead them to nothing but pain and destruction. Maybe a new habit that is going to lead to addiction and sorrow. Maybe it's a, a course of, of uh, their profession that leads them in a, in a place among people that are going to cause them to drift farther and farther away from the Lord. Nevertheless, you see them merrily skip on their way to danger and sorrow and heartache. There are times in our lives where we hate to be right and to be completely honest. It is often scary and heartbreaking. And when the ultimate end that you tried to warn them against turns out to be the reality, we mourn with them and we cry with them. But if we're honest, we're not surprised by the ending that has come about. In our passage today, we pick up in the middle of Ezekiel's first prophecy and his prophetic actions, his prophetic behavior towards the nation of Israel. And he is going to deal with Israel and the entire nation of people. When we talk about the nation of Israel, we're not just talking about the northern kingdom. or the, We're talking about all of it, the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, anybody who would identify as, as an Israelite. And he is directing words directly at them. And make no mistake, as we go through this, uh, this uh, book and this book of prophecy, we're going to see him deal with Israel specifically. We're going to see him deal with a lot of other people. And this is the first time he begins to prophesy against the nation of Israel. And God is telling the nation of Israel that, that they have been warned about what was going to happen. And he is telling them now it is going to happen. And yet, in the midst of all this, God is communicating to them and to even us today about who he is and how we might walk with him. So what is God saying through these prophecies and what, what might he even be communicating to us through these prophecies intended for Israel thousands of years ago? Well, the first thing I want you to pick up from the book of Ezekiel, of Ezekiel and especially in, in this prophecy that we're dealing with right now, is that we see God's patience on display. Now, given what we've just read, you may not see that. But in order to see that, we actually have to go all the way back to chapter 4. And as we go to chapter 4, we begin to see Ezekiel start to do things in order to communicate a message to Israel, he is essentially kind of putting on a show, but it's a show without words. See, Ezekiel was, he was in, uh, in uh, exile. He was living in a Jewish settlement with Jewish people in Babylon, but he was a priest. And so even if they didn't necessarily realize at this very beginning that he was now a prophet, he was somebody that they knew. 
They knew who he was. He was a priest. He was someone who kind of took care of things and, and, and did a, a lot, a man of importance in the, in, the, in the community. And now he's about to start behaving very, very strangely. And he's going to do so with a purpose. And so as we look at chapter 4, what we begin to see is the first thing he does is he takes a brick. And this was probably a fairly large-sized brick made of mud and, and, and something pretty clear. And he takes that brick and he begins to draw on the top of that brick the city of Jerusalem. And it would have been done so in a way, and, and I think the city, for all of those that were in exile, they knew the city. They knew how it was set up. They knew what it looked like. There would have been those key things that they would have noticed. If you think about uh, any big city that you've ever been to and the landmarks that come with that, the tall skyscrapers or the bridges, if we think about Louisville or, or maybe the stadiums. I'm you know, from the Missouri area, so you're going to think about the arch in St. Louis. And, they, and he puts all that out that so that anybody who walked past and they looked at this brick, they would have said, oh, he drew a picture of Jerusalem on it. But then he began to do all these other things. And he began to, he put this brick there, and then he begins to, to basically act out the way an a invading nation would take a city like Jerusalem. And so he starts to build the, the siege towers and, and the, the hills that they, the bulwark, the hills that they would literally build a hill in order to get over the walls into the thing. That he sets up all of these things so that very clearly he is acting out the invasion of the city of Israel. In the midst of this, he does something very interesting. And I want to look at, at chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. If you've got your Bibles with you, turn to that and just follow along with me. And after he has created this whole diorama, if you will, he says these words in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 4. He orders Ezekiel to lay on his side. And he gives him a set amount of days that he's going to lay on one side of his body and then a set amount of days that he's going to lie on the other side of his body. And what's interesting is, if we look at the passages, he really doesn't have any say over it. He's going to lay on one side and not be able to move until he's allowed to flip to the other side. It says this, he says, For I have assigned to you a number of days corresponding to the years of their iniquity. Talking about Israel. 390 days, thus you shall bear the iniquity of the house of Israel. When, this, when you have completed these, you shall lie down a second time, but on your right side and bear the iniquity of the house of Judah. And I have assigned it to you for 40 days, a day for each year. And so what he was going to do is he had set up this diorama, this picture of Jerusalem being invaded, and then he had to lay down and just stare at it First, for 390 days. Now, I don't know if you are good at math. I know one of you is good at math. But there are only 365 days in a year. And so if my math is correct, that means for the first time, he has to lay on his side without moving for over a year. And then he gets to flip around and lay on the other side of his body for over a month. And all of this is to remind the people and point to the people that he is with that the reason that Jerusalem is under siege and that the Jerusalem is going to be attacked and utterly destroyed was because of the sin of the people. 
But that's a lot. In fact, each day that he lays on a side represents a day, a year in the iniquity of these two nations. First of Israel, and now he's talking about the northern kingdom. And within the northern kingdom, he is going to lie there to represent the 390 years that Israel had lived in iniquity and sinned against God. Almost 400 years did God bear with the northern kingdom, with the nation of Israel, and 40 years with the southern kingdom, with the the nation of Judah, before he finally acted in a decisive manner. This is a reminder to us that God, is, that God often gives us every opportunity to realize our error and the error of our sin and return to him. I'm reminded of what Peter says in his letter in 2 Peter 3, 9. He says, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but he is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. See, we might kind of take on, and depending on on where you're at, take on this idea that that God is is very vengeful and very quick to judge. And and sometimes that's why what keeps us out of church and out of a right relationship with him. Is we view that that we deserve to be punished and we deserve to, to, to get in trouble. And so to a degree, we avoid a relationship with the Lord. We avoid having that kind of communion with him because we're afraid of what he will do to us. Being honest, sometimes we get mad at God because he does not deal with people quickly enough. And that there are people in our life that we see and they sin against God. And man, we are just ready for God to strike them down. And we get frustrated when he doesn't. But what we see in, our, in this and what we recognize from God's slowness to bring about this judgment on Israel is that God wants repentance. He doesn't want to, to do the, the, the destruction. He doesn't want to do the judgment. He doesn't want to do the condemning. He wants to see repentance and he will wait and wait and wait to see if, if, if the people will come back to him. Now he knows what they're going to do. It's not like God is up in heaven wringing his hands, just hoping that we're going to get our life together. But he does want it to be abundantly clear that he has given us every opportunity to turn towards him. In fact, Galatians 6, 7 says it this way. It says, do not be deceived. God is not mocked for whatever a man sows, he will also reap. And this, this weird behavior by Ezekiel is to point to the people that, that they've, that they have earned what they are getting and that they had been given every opportunity to make a different choice. Now that should honestly be, when we don't realize this, that should be a comfort to us. Because we have a God who is, who is, is doing everything he can to bring us back to him, to call us to repentance instead of destruction. And brothers and sisters, I plead with you. Cry out to the Lord and be the vessel through which God causes other and encourages others to cry out to the Lord as well. Because God is very patient. But what we also see through this passion 
is that sin is still a very serious thing that has to be dealt with. See, the reality is, is when we come to this point in the story, God is fully aware that Israel has completely gone away from him. That they have become so wrapped up in other things and their own sinful lifestyle that now the judgment has to come. And so he is bringing that judgment to get them because sin is a serious thing. We can go to the New Testament and we see that quite clearly as we talk about it often with salvation. For the wages of sin is death. And death is a serious thing. If we go back to chapter 4 and we look at verse 7, it says this. He tells Ezekiel, God says, you shall set your face towards the siege of Jerusalem with your arm bared and you will prophesy against it. God is communicating through Ezekiel that, that the time of his patience has now officially run out. And it was time for God to deal with the sin of Jerusalem. You may ask yourself, why now? Why at this time? The, chap, the answer is found in this chapter when he explains to how Ezekiel will, will uh, survive and how um, he lays it out of the course over this time. Don't know what I just said, but we'll go with it. Ezekiel chapter 4, starting in verse 9, says this. It says, but as for you, take wheat and barley and beans and lentils and millet and spelt. I don't even know what most of that stuff is, but it doesn't sound delicious. And put them into a vessel and make them into bread for yourself. And you shall eat it according to the number of days that you lie on your side, 390 days. He also goes on to say in verse 12, and that you shall eat it as a barley cake, having baked it in their sight over human dung. Mmm. You may ask the question, what on earth is this saying? And why is, why is this related to the judgment, this bread if Ezekiel were to actually eat it, would have defiled him because of how he cooked it. That to cook bread over human excrement would make it unclean. And he is pointing out to the person, he's saying, you are going to eat this kind of nasty bread. See, this, the way that this bread was made and, and all that was kind of related to it pointed out the fact that these were starvation rations. This is what you would eat if your city was under siege and you no longer had access to trade and people coming in. And, and you would eat the, the, the nastiest stuff you could, whatever it took to survive and just enough to survive and hope to stay off starvation. And so not only was this a starvation ration, but it was something that would have made all of them unclean. And he's pointing all of this out to them to say, what, you, what is happening? Your iniquity has made you utterly and completely unclean in the eyes of God. They were completely and wholly defiled, corrupted by sin and in full rebellion towards him. Now, God, in his grace, ultimately told Ezekiel he didn't have to use human feces, but instead could use cow feces. And I'm sure you're all relieved that that made it so much better. And yet he was making it abundantly clear to the people that judgment has come because their hearts have been completely turned away from God. 
You may ask, how were they defiled? And to answer that question, we need only to look at the passage that we've already read today. Ezekiel chapter 6, starting in verse 3, says, Say to the mountains, listen to the word of the Lord God. Thus says the Lord God to the mountains, the hills, the ravines, and the valleys. Behold, I myself am going to bring a sword against you so that I will destroy your high places. So your altars will become desolate and your incense altars will be smashed. And I will make your slain fall in front of your idols. See, the reason that they were being judged was because of their idolatry. They had forsaken the one true God in order to worship idols. The judgment that, that God gives to the mountains is because the mountains had become filled with everyone's personal idols. And they had taken on the worship of, of, of the, the nations around them. They worshiped Baal and, and Asherah. And they had gone into these high places on top of mountains. And each family and all these people had built their own personal idol. And instead of, of doing the worship that they had been called to do in covenant with God in the temple in Jerusalem, they had gone out to the mountains to worship in the way that the nations around them had, was doing. To make matters even worse, they had begun to let what was going on out in the mountains to now make its way into the temple itself. And they were setting up, and we're going to read about this in the weeks to come, they were setting up altars to these false gods, to these idols in the temple complex itself. This is how far they had gone. And so their idolatry had become so complete that now God was stepping in to judge. Now, I want you to be aware of something today. We may look at this today and be like, oh, well, we would never do that. And yet, we see so often today that most sin boils down to some kind of idolatry. There is probably something in your life that you would ultimately put ahead of your relationship with God. It might be your family. That's, I think, the sneakiest one. It might be your own personal wants and pleasures, your own uh, well-being. We see happiness in the world today turned into an idol. We see our career, our money, our toys, our recreation, all sorts of things become, be, get placed in this position of idolatry. So that when it comes right down to it, if we have to choose between obedience to the Lord and whatever that other thing is, ultimately we will pick that other thing. And guys, we do it all the time. And I say we, because even I am not above placing things to an idolatrous level in my own life. We always have to be careful to not look at what is going on in Israel and say, <laughs> those guys were so dumb. Because so often, our hearts are the exact same way. It's just our, our idols are not statues. They're cars, motorcycles, children, positions in a job, money in a bank account, or our happiness. Here's what we need to understand about sin as it relates to Ezekiel and as it relates to us. Israel's sin and idolatry had reached such a point 
that they were no longer willing or even able to repent and turn back to God apart from some mighty act of God. And so God was going to perform and provide a mighty act through his righteous judgment. What's he going to do then? What is God's response to the sin of Israel at this time? Take a look at chapter 5. It says this in chapter 5, it says, As for you, son of man, take a sharp sword and take and use it as a barber's razor on your head and on your beard. Then take scales for weighing and divide the hair. Now, this is a, a symbol of shame to the Jewish people. Because your beard and your hair were significant. In fact, one of the symbols of your covenant relationship with God was that you did not take a razor to your beard. You didn't try to trim it up. You didn't try to do certain things. Even today, you'll see some of those that are Orthodox Jews that keep certain parts of their beard and their hair long because of that to them is a symbol of their covenant relationship with God. And now he is telling him, cut it off. Cut off this symbol of your relationship with God. And then I want you to divide it up into three things. Three piles, three measures. And those three piles and measures are going to symbolize what God is going to do with the nation of Israel. In chapter 5, we read first, he takes this first third and he just says, throw it in the fire. And he takes this measure of, of, of hair, of beard and of hair, and he, he throws it into the fire and has it completely burned up. We read later in the chapter that this is to represent that some, a third of Israel, will be consumed by plague and famine. That they will be completely consumed and cease to exist. He says, take a second part of the hair and he says, throw it up in the air and strike it with the sword. And I cannot imagine how strange and awkward that might look to see a grown man with a sword batting around hair as it flitters through the air. And he was to go through the whole city doing that very thing. And it was to symbolize that another third would be killed by the sword by those who would take the city of Jerusalem. The last third, he says, to toss in the wind and let it be carried off in the breeze. And this last third would represent those that will go into exile those going off to Babylon, those fleeing to other nations. And though they might live, they will, ne they will not see home for a long time. This is exactly what happens to Israel because of their sin. God most certainly does deal with sin. If we look at 2 Kings chapter 25, picking up in verse 8, we read this. Now on the seventh day of the fifth month, month was with the 19th year of King Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, a servant of the king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem. And he burned the house of the Lord, the king's house, and all the houses in Jerusalem. Even every great house was burned with fire. So all the army of the Chaldeans who were with the captain of the guard, broke down the walls around Jerusalem. Then the rest of the people who were left in the city and the deserters who had deserted to the king of Babylon and the rest of the people, Nebuzaradan, the captain of the guard, carried away into exile. 
But only the captain of the guard left some of the poorest of the land to be vine dressers and plowmen. Ezekiel's prophecy was going to come to pass. And it was true because God always deals with unrepentant sin. The acts and the words of Ezekiel painted an ugly and bitter end to the nation. And yet, God's grace still shines through. I want to go back to chapter 5 for just a moment. As we look at everything that happened to Ezekiel's hair and Ezekiel's beard, I want you to look again at verse 3 for just a moment. And there's one little simple sentence that we see explained a little bit more in chapter 6. And it says this, Take also a few numbers, this is hair, from the piles and bind them to the edge of your robe. Now wait just a second. He had told him to measure out the thirds. And, and if we think about the thirds, that was supposed to be burnt up, struck with the sword, cast to the wind. And yet what we see in this one small verse, that a portion was saved. A portion was tucked away into the safe place in his clothing so that it would not be burned in the fire, that it would not be scattered to the wind, that it would not be struck by the sword. This is what God was talking about in chapter 6 when he says, However... I will leave a remnant for you will have escaped the sword among the nations when you have scattered among the countries. Then those who will escape will remember me among the nations to which they will be carried captive. How I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts and have turned away that they have turned away from me and by their eyes which played the harlot. That they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the exile which they have committed, for the evils which they have committed, for their abominations. Then they will know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would inflict this disaster upon them. This is the last thing that we need to remember about God today. As we look at what is happening to the nation of Israel, he is bringing a horrific judgment upon Israel who is rightly deserving this punishment for their sin. And yet, even then, the ultimate plan for all that he is doing is still redemption. He is preserving a remnant. A remnant that will realize their sin, confess, repent, and return to God. A remnant from whom the Messiah will come. And a remnant that will make a way for salvation, not just for the nation of Israel, but for all the nations of the world. Throughout the whole book of Ezekiel, we will see how God is bringing judgment and wrath towards this nation. But we get to know today that he will preserve a remnant. That there is still hope in the midst of judgment. That there is still purpose in the midst of all that happens as it relates to sin. And that that hope was for Israel. But that hope is also for us. Because through the remnant, God will send his one and only son. To save all who will place their hope and trust in him. And I want you to think about your life for just a second. 
And think about where you are in your walk with God. I'm sure if we were all honest with ourselves here today, right now, we all know that either as we speak right now or in past time, there have been moments in our life where we are far from God. And odds are, especially if you've come through those times, when you are in those times where you are far from God, you have felt that. You have felt the effects of the sin on your life. You have felt the hopelessness. You have felt the darkness. You have felt the loneliness and the isolation. You have felt the sorrow and the brokenness that comes with being far from God and stuck in sin. And maybe even at that time you recognize that you were getting exactly what you deserved for the sin in your life. Maybe that's how you feel right now. And you feel alone and depressed and overwhelmed and and saddened and you feel like you are being judged. Well, I want you to understand something today. God, if God is working in your life today and you feel that judgment and you feel that sorrow and you feel that pain, he is not doing that just for judgment's sake. He is not doing that just because he wants you to feel horrible and just because he wants you to feel this tall and just because he wants to crush you. That's not the reality at all. But the reality is that whatever God is doing in your life right now, it is for the purpose of bringing you back into the right relationship with him. And make no mistake, when we are far from God, there are times where we will suffer loss to get back with God. That he will remove the idols from our lives. And he will take away the things that we have been relying on and leaning on and trusting on instead of him. And sometimes that hurts, and sometimes that is hard. But he has not given up on you. And he is still calling you to repentance. And he has still made the way so that you can be right with God. One of the things that, that, that I don't always think about, but I kind of stood in awe of as I was reading this passage and thinking about this today, is that Jesus came from this remnant. When all were scattered aside and all had died and there was just these few left that were either off in Babylon or in one of the nations or stuck there, the poorest of the poor, to be these vine dressers and whatnot, one of them came from the house of Judah. And from the house of Judah, they lived and they were preserved and they kept living and they kept having and children and children and children until finally there was a man named Joseph. And it was through Joseph that the angel appeared and said, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child that she carries is the son of the most high. And he will save the people from their sin. When God works in our lives, it is always to bring us to Jesus. You may be here today and you see them frantically trying to put the circles up here to figure out what I'm trying to do. And if you're here today and you're sensing that work of God in your life, you're sensing that brokenness, and that, that discontent, and you're feeling that isolation and that distraction, and you're feeling like, like God is doing something in your life, and to be quite honest with you, it hurts. I want you to understand that that hurt is not just for hurt's sake. 
But that hurt is to move you to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. All that God is doing is to move us closer and closer to the one who gave everything to save us from our sin. The good news of the gospel is that God sent his one and only son. Through all of this, God sent his one and only son to live the life we couldn't live, to die on the cross for our sins, and to rise from the grave three days later. And whatever you are going through today, please understand that that is a call from God to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and to confess him as Lord, turning away from the sin that has got you to that place of brokenness and turn to him. In the midst of all of this judgment, we see hope. And not just hope for a remnant of Israel, but hope for a Messiah who would deal with sin once for all. If it is your desire today to have a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ, or maybe you're at a point in your life where you need to really surrender parts of your life to him and to trust into him to begin a closer walk with him, we want to invite you to respond today. I'm going to be up front. I would love to have prayer with you, talk with you a little bit about what it means to make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior. I am sure that there are people around you that would love to have that conversation with you as well. But don't spend another day dealing with the wrath of God because of your sin. Surrender your life to him, trust him, and repent. And you will be redeemed. Let us pray. Our gracious God and King, Lord, we do praise you so much for your goodness and your grace and your mercy. God, we praise you that even in the midst of our sin and, and when we deserve to be, uh, we deserve the punishment and we deserve the condemnation that even then, God, you keep this remnant. Even then, God, you are calling us to repentance. Even then, God, you are pointing us to Jesus and bringing us to his feet. God, it is my hope and prayer that if there's anyone here that either needs to surrender their life to Jesus today or that they need to a closer walk with him, that they need to cast down some of their idols so that they can walk with him in a renewed uh, passion and a renewed spirit. God, I pray that today will be that day. God, we see even in the midst of the judgment that we deserve, you still love us and that you are still calling us to yourself. Lord, I pray that we would not resist that, but that we would trust you, that we would surrender our lives to you, and God, that we would experience your grace and forgiveness. God, we praise you for these things, and we ask them in Jesus Christ. Amen.